What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sado Stronger podcast. So fair warning on today's episode, we've got Sam Pedlow. So we're going to dive into a bunch of fun stuff, but extra fair warning. We both have like a baby warning. So if there's a random baby crying in the background, I'm going to blame Sam and his and not mine, but it's probably going to be mine and Claire. So there's your there's your preamble warning for today if there's random high pitched sounds. So there you go. Well, it can't be blamed on me because mine's a daycare today, but cats, oh, I can't promise that a cat is not going to uh, enter the conversation. Yeah, there's, there might be a pepper that wanders into the room every time, so, uh, every once in a while too. So, well, for our listeners, you know, the, the, our three listeners or four listeners, as the clinical athlete guys say, um, that haven't experienced any of the Sam Pedlow experience, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a while, as we were chatting before. Uh, known each other for a while, but our first uh, virtual introduction in person. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. But yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar with myself, Sam Pedlo, I played professional beach volleyball for the last 10 years for the Canadian national team. Represented Canada at over 100 international events. I've been privileged to play at multi-sport games, you know, starting with Fichu Games, which was in Russia when I was attending university, and then the Commonwealth Games in uh, 2018, qualified for the Pan Am Games in Lima, but ultimately denied that spot in pursuit of, of the Olympics. Tried to qualify for two Olympic Games, 2016 and 2020, was unsuccessful in both of those, but all part of the, the volleyball journey. Outside of the court, I'm a registered physiotherapist. I graduated with my master's in 2012 from Western University. I now work as a practicing physio again, three days a week at Mend Physio, Queen and Carla here in Toronto. Super, super happy to be working there. It's been an awesome year in the clinic the last year. And then recently, over the last couple of years, I've uh, kind of gone full steam into uh, strength and conditioning. So that started before the Tokyo run. And uh, now it's just continued to develop into a kind of a larger and larger project for myself. So I've spent the last year at home uh, spending as much time as I possibly could with my wife and baby and spending time in the clinic working with general population and athletes and then online virtually programming for volleyball players around the world. Before we started recording, Sam and I were talking about how life is busy. And I, I can't imagine why you're busy. I mean, you clearly don't have anything going on. Uh, you're just sitting around at home working out in your badass dungeon gym, <laughs> clearly. But yeah, my days are interesting. Um, I would say I, I haven't met anyone else who has a schedule like myself, but I would say that that probably was the case before I started getting up at three o'clock in the morning or three thirty is when my alarm goes off to start working out. I've always had a little bit of an eclectic schedule, but yeah, now it's, um, yeah, I wake up at 3.30, I start my workout at 4 in the dungeon, and in the winter, it literally is a dungeon, because everything's still pretty dark and cold. Finish my workout by 6 or 6.15, and then uh, start doing work until the baby wakes up, take care of the baby until she's either off to daycare or we're going to do something, and then sit down at my computer or go to the clinic, one or the other. I'm either writing programs or doing research or working with clients in the clinic, and Thankfully, my evenings aren't very busy. Uh, they can't be because I go to bed at eight o'clock. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, what evenings are we talking about here? Well. Yeah, yeah, it works for me. You know, like once a year, I'll have a social event and that's usually pretty fun, but it takes me a full year to regain like the social endurance <laughs> to do it again. Yeah, the, the battery just gets charged up throughout the year. It's like, okay, yeah, there's the depletion. We've done the wedding or whatever it is. Time to go train for another year by myself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Definition of an extrovert, really. <laughs> I... When people talk to me, I think they're very surprised to realize that I'm an introvert. Um, you know, I can be very social. I can carry on a conversation. You know, I've got no problem being, you know, the center of attention in a room or anything like that. But they don't see me when I get home and I just like walk into the house and pass out on the couch for the next 10 hours. Yeah, sounds about right. I think a lot of coaches surprisingly have that where it's like people that are really into the the soft skills and the, the social aspect of training and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't think, I, I don't think it's very rare for those kind of coaches to just go home and crash right after. Cause mm -hmm. for whatever reason, a bunch of us are super introverted. I didn't even realize I was introverted until like really after um, university, which was a funny experience, but yeah. 
Yeah, I think people don't realize the mental energy that things like that the toll takes. You know, I was just talking to my wife the other day, and she just went back to work for mat leave. She's off for 18 months. She goes into the office and, you know, she's a lawyer. She sits at her desk and she does her meetings and she does her work. And then she comes home and, you know, she's been going into the office now because she's back at work and we're still going through the weird COVID thing. And uh, she comes home. She's like, I have no idea why I'm so tired after I go into the office. Like I didn't actually do anything. I just sat at my desk and I was like, oh, you're preaching to the choir. Like I can go into the gym and work out for as long as you want me to. But you ask me to like talk to people for four or five hours or or try and digest knowledge or, or create something online line like the mental like the energy that that takes away from me is so much more than physical i'm really good at physical you ask me to keep going i will i will go until i pass out you ask me to try and focus and you know expend that mental energy over that same time period i'm not nearly as strong at that skill yeah sets of 30 of squats were fine but you know 10 minute intervals of conversation that's just that's high intensity training that's that's the definition of hit Hey, I am uh, I'm a rep junkie, so I'm willing to do oh. sets of thirty all day. Oh, oh, my heart, my heart of all those things, my heart just fluttered at like the set rep junkie. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Okay, well, so obviously we've got a whole bunch of things that we could question Sam about today, ladies and gentlemen, or lady and gentlemen. Um, one of them being my mom that listens to this. Is that mom? Um, my parents are my parents make up listener two and three for sure. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. We've doubled. We've doubled. Um, no, but there's a ton of things that we can dive into. And you and I have had conversations on Instagram because again, we're super cool that way. Um, about a lot of things. So I, I've got my, you know, my pseudo list here of things I wanted to cover, but I'm not I'm not apprehensive of just deeping diving deep into something here by any means. Um the, the coolest thing about you from a we've never had this kind of person on is like, what's it like training for the Olympics and like going into that crazy professional setting? Because that is outside of my scope for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if we take it back to like even when I graduated university, so when I finished my master's in 2012, I don't think people realize like the time commitment it takes to get to the level that I, along with a few other guys, got to. Like you think about professional beach volleyball in Canada, there's there's very, very few of us. Like you think on the men's side, there's like four on the women's side, there's like six or eight. Our women's program is deeper than our men's program. But when I'm talking like professional beach volleyball player, I'm I'm saying that that is like by far and away your primary focus. So when that happens, like I don't have time to work. So 2012, I graduated from my master's. I thought, you know what? I can work in the off season. I can work out. I can train. I can go to the clinic and I'll be okay. Very quickly realized that that's not the case, right? If I wanted to actually be a professional beach volleyball player, I didn't just want to be someone who was carded and I got to go to some Norsecas. And then two years later, I got to tell the story about how I represented Canada. Like that's the standard kind of process people go through in beach volleyball in Canada, then they realize they can't really do it. So they quit. They played 10 tournaments over their career and and they're done. That's not something that I wanted for myself. So I knew I had to go all in. So I quit my job in 2014, which I was only working a few days a week in the off season, went all in. I knew that basically I had to structure my entire life where volleyball was the priority. And, And that's the way my life was for four year increments trying to qualify for 2016 and and 2020. You have to have some difficult conversations with family, with friends, and and they got to understand like, you know, my wife had her law school formal and I had, you know, Fichu games tryouts. And I was like, listen, I'm going to go to your law school formal for an hour. And then I got to leave because I got to go to Downsview Park tomorrow, win a couple games so I can go to Russia and, and play in this event. You know, missing weddings, missing other social events during the summer, you know, spending months on the road without my wife, the the sacrifice is high, but you're doing it, you know, in pursuit of this arguably massive goal that is, you know, larger than what most people will set for themselves in their life. And, you know, there's a certain amount of fear associated with setting a goal that big for yourself. Um, because you don't want to miss, right. (laughs) I missed twice. And, uh, you have to truly realize that, you know, the cliche, it's, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And sometimes it's really hard to realize that when you're in it, but you know, I missed two Olympics and I, I would maybe change it. People say I wouldn't change a thing. Maybe I would so that I got to attend an Olympics, but 
what has you know come to fruition because of that process has been uh i i never thought i'd be doing what i'm doing now but you know a a short answer uh even though i've given a long one is it's probably the most difficult thing you'll ever do not only physically but mentally you know i think a lot of people in their occupation or throughout their everyday life like second chances come up a lot so you know if you're working on something in, a, in the corporate world and you know the meeting doesn't go well or whatever it is you have an opportunity to follow up to correct your mistakes and you know potentially have that project pushed through or whatever my life ultimately came down in four year blocks to one game and i didn't have like a do-over i either won and i went to the olympics or i lost and i didn't get to go to the Olympics. So that amount of pressure is it's unlike really anything most people experience where you have one shot and that's it. There's no going back. There's no opportunity to do it again. It's like it is what it is. You just have to accept the result and, and move on. And you're structuring your entire life for that one moment. And and that can be overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of I think it's super interesting from a long-term planning aspect from like just a life standpoint. And this is, I'd be interested to get your take on this for sure. It's, it's a big sacrifice to take that chunk of time and say, I'm going to do this all out because obviously even just from a financial standpoint, like supporting yourself and projecting where you want to be, you know, in 10 years, whatever it is, when you went through that period and said, okay, I'm going to devote my time, money, energy resources towards this goal. Did you have this plan in place where it was, okay, you know, after this goal, I'll be okay because I can do X, Y, Z, or is it just, I'm hitting this, we're going to do it and we'll figure it out later. Yeah. So I'll say I was in a bit of a unique situation, right? I did seven years at university before I played my first international match. So I also took a professional program, right? Physio. It's uh, the concepts in our profession don't go out of date as quickly as say something like if you took a marketing degree, right? If I would have taken a marketing degree in 2010, like Instagram was not around. So if I would have said, you know what, I'm going to play for 10 years, and then I'm going to go back and do marketing. Well, that, that doesn't work, right? Because the landscape of the profession has completely changed. So I always knew that I was going to go back and be a physio. That was ultimately going to be like my long-term career. Um, that I had comfort in that, right? Because I, I always had, a, that was the backup plan. That's what became the backup plan. Funny enough was that actually was plan A. Plan A was to be a physiotherapist and just finish school and, and start my career. Uh, plan B was not even to play volleyball. I thought I was completely done. Um, and then I came back into the sport, had success, and then volleyball became plan A. But I was privileged in the sense that my degree was still going to hold a lot of value, whether I was four years out, five years out, 10 years out. And the sport, you know, it, it helped me become a better physiotherapist as well, because I really had started to dive into the strength and conditioning side of things, like the exploration of human movement, applied biomechanics, things like this which as the profession of physiotherapy evolved, started to really adopt more of those concepts as being foundational, understanding, you know, the real positive effects, strength and conditioning, getting in the weight room can have on, you know, your perception of injury and, and performance. So yeah, I was fortunate enough that, uh, I didn't have to kind of create this mastermind plan to be successful after the sport was done. What I tried to do was leverage my sport experience into kind of the professional degree I'd already had and, and kind of bring them all together. Well, that's the, that, that, that's what I kind of thought or had gathered from what I've seen from your content, which is fantastic. Like you couldn't have planned it better almost, um, even if you tried. And I think this is one of the really cool things of just a story of chasing your passion and your passion and your um, career kind of melded into this this perfect child of whatever you want to call this strength and conditioning physiotherapy hybrid that you've created, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think stepping away from the profession that was physiotherapy, like I almost got a second chance. So I graduated, I came out of school. I was super green, obviously thinking like, everything is roses and you go into the clinic and you, you kind of develop a style the same way you would as a coach on the weight room floor, right? You, you adopt this. It's not a character because it's not faked, but you adopt you as the coach, right? It's the same thing with physio. You go in there, 
you want to conduct yourself a certain way, you want to communicate a certain way, you want to outline a plan uh, a certain way. And, you know, depending on the environment you're in or your coworkers or clinic culture, whatever it might be, you adopt a certain style. I did that as a fresh grad. And, um, you know, I worked in a couple clinics that they were great at the time, not places that I ultimately would want to spend, you know, 20 years at, but for my point in my career, they, they were exceptional. But I adopted this, this character and then I walked away and I had time to evaluate who that character was, what the effectiveness of that person was, and was that how I wanted to operate when I came back? And, and now that I've come back, I, you know, I've completely changed the way that I operate as a therapist. And it's funny, if you were to ask me like now, you know, looking back on it now, I'm 10 years removed from school. Um, I think if I were to do it all again, I, I don't know if I would be a physiotherapist. Like at this point right now, I would have dove completely into the strength and conditioning side of things. And I would probably want to be doing exactly what you're doing, right? Like have your own facility, be working with athletes in that area. Thankfully, physio really plays into that side of things, um, you know, which gives me a little bit of an advantage in the sense that when it comes to like diagnosing and rehabbing injuries, right, that's an area I'm an expert in. And then now what I'm offering is like a continuation of that care into the weight room or, you know, need physio and, and, and we start there. But I'm kind of now at the point where as a strength coach, I'm in that like green environment, right? But I'm so aware now of like how I, like what works for me and what doesn't, that it's made it a lot easier to conduct myself like in, in that scope of things because of my experiences as a physio as well. Yeah, I think it's so funny because I, I came from the other side. Like I'm a big pain and rehab nerd, but not a physio by any means. And every once in a while, I'm like, ah, should have gone to physio. Because, <laughs> and it, it's, it's pretty much exactly for one of the things you mentioned there. It's when people come in for a volleyball injury, you're the guy. And then once it, once you've been cleared, now you're the guy that knows how to get them super strong or super competitive or whatever their goal is. So it's just a natural continuation, right? For us, it, it kind of gets to, to raw or to ride this line a bit more where it's like, no, I'm not a physio. We can help you with the pain stuff to a certain degree, but like you said, we can't diagnose, we can't um, do anything formal, nor should we try. But uh, there's definitely times where I'm like, well, physio school, I don't know how many years is that? I can go back. And then, then I look at my wife and she just gives me the death stare and I say, no, 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 no. That's a silly thing. <laughs> An extra two years of school. And the thing with physio, right, is there's multiple different areas you're going to work in. So obviously I work in like an outpatient primarily musculoskeletal dependent, you know, clinic. I'm not working in the hospital in acute care, cardio rest, anything like this. Well, I got to learn all that in my master's, right? And believe it or not, in my master's, the setting I'm in right now was the setting I did the worst at on the tests. And the reason was because I knew I was going to be strong in that area. I knew I was going to, I had enough knowledge to, to pass that section but the cardio rest and the rehab in the hospital, just, it, it didn't resonate with me at all. So I had to work so incredibly hard to make sure that I was like really knowledgeable in those areas so that I could be confident going into the national exam. The, the majority of, of my studying on the MSK side has been like independent through, through what really interests me. And that's, what's kind of really just tailored into this, uh, you know, wanting to be more involved on the, on the S side. And, and a point you made there, which is exceptional. And, and, you know, that's why I have a ton of respect for you as a, as a, as a strength coach is, is understanding that you can't do everything. Right. I, I even have athletes that I'm like, I'm not the right fit for you. Like I need you to see someone else. But one of the things we're seeing in this, you know, in the industry we're in, you're right. Physio and strength and conditioning. It's not so far removed that we're like, these are two completely different disciplines. But we're seeing a lot of strength coaches try and be physios, which is making things challenging. And, and, you know, they're putting out these cookie cutter programs on the Internet. That's like, oh, this is the solve for knee pain or this is the solve for shoulder pain. And people are thinking, OK, well, I can go pick this up off the Internet. I can get a discount. It's not as much as physiotherapy is. And, and this will help me out. And they're just you know, that works for some people, but it also doesn't work for a lot of people. Right. So, you know, having the knowledge to say hey, I want you to go get checked out by someone else. Let's get some guidance. And then that also gives you an understanding of like 
it's not like they're off limits, right? It's it, what can we train and do with this injury in mind to, 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 to still push you towards this overarching goal, right? Like, okay, someone's got a wrist problem and like, well, maybe now Olympic lifting is a little bit different, but maybe now we're doing some unilateral stuff. We can load your legs with SSBs, whatever it might be. But I think, uh, you know, sometimes strength and conditioning coaches get really freaked out and they're like an athlete gets injured. They're gone from me. I don't know what to do instead of being like, well, I can work collaboratively with physio and we can still get this all done. No problem. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's massive and it's worth diving into a bit more because, and I have been in, and I still catch myself every once in a while in this realm of thinking that members or clients or whoever it is expects that, you know, everything expect that you know everything. And this idea of saying, no, that's outside of my scope is a scary thing because it makes you feel like almost less of an authority. If say mm-hmm. you're, you know, the volleyball person that does training, well, it's like, well, you should know how to do injuries. It's like, well, kind of, but it's, it's way more than just the coaching aspect. There's so many other things that we just don't know to ask or to look into, or, you know, all these things that physios are trained for. Um, so I think it's, uh, just having that little bit of humi- humility is really hard at the end of the day and saying, you know, having this network of, let, hey, go see Sam for a bit. Uh, we'll collaborate. Things are going to really well and we'll figure out how to make it work within the context of our program. Because I think a lot of people say like, hey, if I go shoot this person over to physio, that's the last time I'm going to see them. Then you get this weird EBGB feeling. Yeah. And I, I think there was, uh, there was two things you said there. One, you know, while I was in school, we used to have these like the 10 commandments of physio and they were on the back of our like first year shirts or whatever it is. And one of them was fake it till you make it. And I fucking hate that. Oh, like, I cannot yeah. stand that. There's no way a client's going to come in and sit down on the bed, tell me their problems, be vulnerable with me, and then ask me a question. And I have no idea the answer and me go and make something up. Like that is a horrible reflection on myself. I would way rather sit there and say, hey, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question right now, but this is what I'm gonna do about it. I'm gonna consult with my colleagues. I'm gonna get on the internet because we we can't remember everything we've been taught, dermatomes, myotomes, oh. neurological interventions, origins and insertions. Like some of it comes very easy, but then you get these cases that they're not normal. And that's usually where you don't have the answer. And I would much rather, you know, be vulnerable with the patient and let them know, like, hey, I need to explore this area a little bit more in order to determine the best possible plan of care for you. And, and for myself, I'd, I'd way rather do that than just try and make something up. So the whole like fake it till you make it thing. I just, I can't stand that at all because we're not experts in everything, right. You know, for myself, like necks, necks are always a challenging, you know, area to work with, right. People often have neck pain for a really long time. It's chronic in nature for most people. It affects so much of their everyday life foot mechanics, right? Like we have a podiatrist who's excellent. I would way rather consult with her about a question I have than just try and put on some smoke and mirror show for for a clinician. And I think if everyone was able to have that vulnerability, not just in things they don't know, but like you said, the ability to uh, have the confidence that you can transfer someone to another discipline and work collaboratively with them, right? Like So for example, if you were a strength coach in Toronto and you sent me an athlete for physio, like we have to have a relationship between each other where the understanding is like, no, I'm not just all of a sudden going to scoop your athlete. What's way better for that. Yeah. What's way better is that like, let's work collaboratively. Like you obviously have a positive relationship with them on the S and C side. Let's see what I can do with physio. Let's consult together. And then when they don't need me, they don't need me. Let's get them back to you because my job is hopefully that I did a, a good enough job and that the client is satisfied enough that if something else comes up, they come back and see me or their buddy in the gym hurts himself. And they say, Hey, I had a really good experience with this guy. Why don't you go check him out? And, and that's really kind of the way that I try and operate. Yeah, no, I love that. And this is one of the the taglines I learned from the clinical athlete guys and like purple medicine, all them. It's if you're, if you become weirdly reliant on a physio or a chiro or a clinician that you have to like see them weekly forever, something's wrong. Like if, if, if like that's your experience from a rehab standpoint and not just like an ongoing performance standpoint, obviously, yep. um, then something is, it, it, there's red flags there. 
Yeah. And I think the discipline of physiotherapy is changing more and more. And, and it's a business at the end of the day. And I was actually just listening to uh, a podcast. All the podcasts I now listen to are either by strength coach or physios. Most of them from Australia. Uh, you know, Athens Authority is a great one. I was listening oh, yeah, to I love the wild, wild physio podcast today. Um, and physio is a business, right? So we're at kind of this... Uh, you know, juxtaposition in the profession, right? We're starting to realize that, you know, sometimes less is more. We've known this for a long time, but you know, my first job coming out, it was pretty standard to be like, yeah, we're going to see you three times a week for four weeks and then we'll reevaluate what's going on. And that never like really resonated well with me because what happens if somebody after one visit feels like a 10 out of 10 and you just told them that it's going to take them, you know, 11 visits before they're done their plan of care. Right. So I, I don't like, operating that way at all. Most of my job for most of my clients is giving them permission to exercise because they're afraid, right? They're afraid that what they're doing is hurting them. And so we come up with a strategy so that we can either control that, could be volume monitoring, could be better exercise selection, could be activity modification. And then we expose them to the uncomfortable stimuli and away they go that's the way hopefully it works for most of them. For some, it takes more coaxing than others. It'll take a, a few more visits, but you know, you, it's the models changing, especially since we've kind of gone online with COVID. We now have wildly successful therapists that only operate through tele rehabilitation, right? So they're just talking to you. So we can have people with back pain get better by just talking to them and we can have them in the clinic and talk and move around and, and they'll get just as, as, as much better. But, um, that kind of old model where it's like, Hey, you are mine. Like you've come in your mind for three times a week for a certain amount. It's just, again, something that I, I don't believe in. And, and thankfully that's not the clinic model I'm in. Um, so it, it makes things a lot easier to not have to talk to your boss every time because they're looking at KPIs about how many visits each client has. Oh yeah. It, uh, it makes things a lot easier. Yeah. I've heard some horror stories when I was with the honey badger guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a lot. Awesome. Okay. I think that's, well, bow on that. That's fantastic. I think that's, <laughs> I, I, it's super important. And it, it's conversations that we've had with Jared and Aaron and um, some of the other physio stuff when they came on anyways, for our long time listeners. Um, and it's, it's a super important conversation that we need to keep having. Speaking of online social media stuff, I want to dive into this a little bit. We're not here to crap on anybody specifically, unless we do, and you know, whatever, it's fine. Um, holding nothing back. Awesome. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the ATG Chris. Let's get a oh. little. Let's get into it. Um, so he, here's my preface, and again, for people that um, are unfamiliar with the ATG crew, or st- there's a whole bunch of different groups and certifications, all that kind of stuff that have similar content. I will say this in general. I love that most of these newer groups promote training. I, I love that they kind of fear monger a lot less than what has been done in the past, where groups used to say, hey, avoid spinal flexion is the kind of typical example. Avoid knees over toes, whatever it is, because it's, it's inherently injurious. And I love that the pendulum has kind of swung back to neutral, potentially too far the other way sometimes. Um, so I wanted to preface this conversation with that because I almost think about it in the same way of what CrossFit has done for the barbell community. It's, it's popularized things beyond belief and made training more accessible, but there's stuff I don't like about the, the older model of CrossFit. That's how I kind of look at this. So there's all my yeah. Canadian prefaces before we get into it. And I think ATG, um, they're in the infancy, right? They're like CrossFit Games, Rich Froning. Well, yep. now we're CrossFit Games, Justin Mulletman, right? Who's the fittest man on earth? So I think we have to be a little bit aware that that system is in its infancy. Now, one, I'll tell you, I'm blocked by them. Like, no question. They blocked me like super quick, um, which was fine. I mean, I don't do that. If somebody is, if I have a, an issue with someone online, I try not to do it in the comments. I'm going to send you a private message and just ask questions, try and learn. Right. And uh, I think that's the most collaborative way to do it. So if I see another volleyball coach out there doing something, 
my question is like, Hey, why are we doing this? Um, you know, we got some guys down in the States and I was asking, I was like, Hey, you're doing some 10 second isometrics at the end of your workout. Like, are you looking to develop like maximum voluntary contraction with that? Are you looking for tendon elasticity and strength? Like, what are you trying to do with that? And, you know, we ultimately came to the conclusion that he was trying to do it for maximum voluntary contraction. And that's something we actually want to do start of the workout, right? You're, you're not going to be producing maximum voluntary contraction after you're fatigued. So let's put it at the beginning. And, you know, it was a great conversation we had, but that wasn't the case with AGG. Um, I got blocked pretty quick. And I think it came off uh, the VMO squats thing. Like we know oh, scientifically yeah. you can't isolate the VMO. I don't care how far your knee goes over your toe. Your entire quadriceps group is functionally extending your knee. We cannot isolate something from a common structure, right? So, so we're going to get... I, your- I will say that I think that you and a bunch of other people have changed your mind a little bit because I saw some of the recent content where it's, they label it as VMO now, but they say it's vastus medialis uh, and it's not actually VMO, which I think is hilarious. And sometimes they put VM. So something's changing internally and I'm, I'm putting it all at your feet. Good job. You changed the whole system. But even then though, even if they label it as vastus medialis, you can't isolate that. Right. So when they're talking about these deep, these deep knee flexion, they're, they're, they're trying to play off of research that is not sound. They're doing the Joel Seedman effect, right? They're just throwing (laughs) stuff out there. Whatever fucking sticks to the wall, sticks to the wall. That being said, I should have prefaced this entire thing with uh, this is that what they do extremely well, they created a low barrier to entry exercise prescription that can help knee pain. And the reason they did that or or how they did that was they created scalable exercises. Okay. So they said, okay, if you can't do this on a slant board, then you will do it on the ground with body weight. Then we will move to a slant board. Then we will move to a deficit. Then we will load it. Right. This is like common physio knowledge, but that isn't, you know, apparent or apparently obvious for the general population when they have knee pain, like, Oh, Hey, I should do this exercise. It's usually like, well, that doesn't work. I'm screwed. I'm done. Right. It's like, Oh, I can't bench. My shoulder hurts. And it's like, well, we can do a million other things other than bench. That's still horizontal pushing. That concept usually makes more sense for people. But when it comes to the lower body, it's usually like all or none, right? It's like, I can do this or I can't. They created a system that that said, Hey, you can't do this. We'll try this. We'll try this, try this. There's your starting point right there. It's the basics. Versus, okay, someone who doesn't have knee pain, you just want to strengthen the quadriceps, you can be doing these exercises. You can do the poliquin step down with a barbell or oscillating squats with a band or whatever it is. That's all great. My biggest issue is, again, using terminology that's not proven in the scientific literature. The second is their concepts are conflicting. And a lot of people online are doing this, right? We're looking at creating as far knee over toe. We're looking at doing Jefferson curls with a dorsiflex position. These are things that are actually going to stretch out our Achilles tendon. If our goal is to jump higher, then we actually want stiffness in our Achilles tendon. So he's promoting this. It's going to bulletproof your knees. It's going to make you the best basketball player or best jumper ever. But what he's doing doesn't go along with the science in order to jump higher. It also doesn't go along with the science is what's happening at the knee, but it's got progressions and he's a hell of a salesman, right? So I know there's been a ton of people who have had success on the program. There's also a ton of conditions at the knee that will not do very well with that. And, And I think that that's important to identify, maybe there should be a disclaimer, like, Hey, if you fit into this category, this is something that will likely benefit you. If you don't fit into this category, maybe you should get cleared before you adopt super deep knee flexion ranges of motion. And you talked about the pendulum. I think HEG swung the pendulum so far to the opposite side that we got lost. It wasn't that, okay, your, your knee can travel over your toe. It was like, holy fuck, let's get your knee as far over your toe as you can, or your knees are going to explode. Yeah. We need like 90 degree foot angle and just like perfectly horizontal in the action. If your calf is not touching your hamstrings, then biologically you will get hurt. And really like, you know, I was, uh, let's call it, I was internet mad at that point, like with the lower body stuff, but, uh, Where it started to go kind of off the deep end for me is when some of those concepts, those maximal ranges of motion were extrapolated to, you know, the upper limb, uh, you know, your shoulder, and then the the back. He, I think he maybe maxed out his potential with uh, what he could make for a lower body. And he started to try and apply those same concepts to two different areas that are not the knee. And I I think that's where it, it lost some of its credibility. 
And this is interesting because I've seen a almost similar progression to what uh, John Russon used to do, or he still yep. does. I haven't followed a lot of his stuff lately because um, anyways, um, but like Ben has put out these, these ratios where it's like, okay, if I'm squatting this much, I need to reverse squat this much. And this is my new standard. And I'm just like, I, I, I like squatting. I like reverse squatting. I like hip flexion, but like why those standards? And then you just get this weird, we, it's like a pseudo barrier almost. It, it is. It's a barrier. It's a barrier to, to exercise. Like John is incredibly popular for, yeah, creating arbitrary standards of like yeah. three to one push pull <laughs> ratio where like you can't barbell back squat until you do a goblet squat with this much. And this, that was, reps. that post was amazing. It was like yeah. 50% of your body weight for like 20 reps or something. I'm just like, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. And then obviously uh, ATG and Ben, they created standards like you should hit flexion 20% of your body weight 25 yeah. times before you can do this. It's like, okay, we just made that up. Like we full yeah. on just made that number up in our head. And maybe you made it up when you were like real small time and you didn't think it was going to blow up and everyone was all of a sudden going to pay attention to you. But you're just creating arbitrary exercise standards that are actually like forcing people to remain like weak for longer right? Like just because you can't hip flex a 20 pound dumbbell 20 times doesn't mean you can't go start learning how to barbell back squat, right? Or you're not going to, or you're at risk for injury because of, uh, you know, you can't hip flexion. And again, if you ever say reverse squat again, we're going to have to, I'm going to block you on Instagram. (laughs) We're done. Podcast over blocked. This whole, you know, we're going to like lie on our back and hook something up to our feet and do like hip flexion. I don't know where this came from, but to me that like that deserves on like some internet meme page where you go to LA fitness and like, you know, some old guy in a wife beater lies down and starts doing hip flexion <laughs> and someone puts it on the internet. Like let's just sprint. Right. Or like we yeah. can do some so, like, so as marching. Yeah. It, it, to me, it's like, like I, I, I played around with the reverse squat. I didn't like it just like logistically more than anything. And like, we'll do this. So as marching more like doing that kind of stuff. Now we're just like hanging knee flexion, whatever it is. And to me, it's, I, I get that it's tough to find what like strong enough is. And like, that's, I think where a lot of this comes down to, right? Like it's how strong do we need hip flexors? How strong do we need knee flexors? How strong do we need hip extensors? And I don't really know where that line is because you know the old adage of you know don't do plyometrics if you can't squat your body weight, and yeah. it's like they're they're just as arbitrary as anything else, right? And it's it, it's tough to find that line. And so I get the idea of trying to promote okay, you need to be stronger. Well, it's like okay, well how stronger? It's like well you should be able to hit about this. Like, okay, well why? And you get this kind of weird cycle because we can't really define what strong enough is on a lot of these things, right? So I, I can understand where it comes from, but. Yeah, it's it's weird. And I think it's context dependent, right? Strong enough for what? Right? Mm-hmm. Like strong enough to meet your activities of daily living, strong enough to be a professional volleyball player, strong enough to be, you know, Brian Shaw, strongest man in the world or the mountain. Like I I mean, it's it's all context dependent. And we were just talking about uh, you know, the uh the podcast about uh relative risk of uh, you know heavy singles or, or low repetition, high weight, you know, deadlifting or squatting versus, you know, lighter with more repetitions. And it's, you know, the conclusion to the, the podcast with Greg and uh, Adam was just that it depends, right? It's like, we don't really know. And I think that that's what I'm trying, you know, with the service I offer online with my programming, you know, I have preset programs on my website, but the majority of my business is, is custom programming, which I like so much more because it's, like the program I'm making for you, it depends, right? That's the answer every time. It's like the program, you're not going to do the same program as someone else because your your needs are not the same. Your experiences are not the same. You know, your familiarization with the weight room is not the same. So to say like, okay, everyone has to go through this process where you're going to body weight squat 50% for 20 reps before I let you barbell squat, like it's it, it doesn't make sense to use something like that. And like you've already touched on, it's just, it's, it's holding people back from exercising because of these like arbitrary standards. Yeah. The other thing that I find really interesting um, about not just ATG, but groups like that is 
going back to something you said before, and I think it's important. They claim these weird performance enhancements that just don't really make sense. And I get that it's social media. You have to make these kind of big blanket statements, but like doing 30 tip raises isn't going to add five inches to your vertical. I don't think. Um, no, not at all. Zero. So yeah. So it's like it's an antagonistic muscle. It doesn't actually extend the ankle. It flexes it. So how yeah. would that, like you can't eccentrically lengthen yourself to but five, five contractions, Sam, co-contractions. So I yeah. was just, I can't believe we didn't talk about Tib Ant. First of all, like, I mean, I'm trying not to swear a lot more, but you got me like fired up. I'm sweating. Uh, when Jared was here, we just kind of went off. So we've, we've already got the explicit little things. So it's all good. Sweating through my shirt. But you know, <laughs> if, if you're looking at deceleration of the foot on contact, your soleus is significantly higher activation than your tibialis anterior. So like, why the fuck are we all of a sudden doing tib raises nonstop? Like, sure. I like to use tib raises after someone's got an ankle injury because, okay, maybe we can actively restore some of their dorsiflexion. Like mm-hmm. we just don't want to be cranking people's ankles with bands all the time. Let's, let's use some calf raises to do some dorsiflexion. Let's use some tib raises. See if you can control that range of motion. But I have never once in my life given a patient tib raises because I'm like, yep, this is going to help with your landing mechanics because eccentrically that thing's lengthening and ooh, man, that's going to protect your lower body. Like, no, the amount of force that's going through there is like, so negligible compared to other muscles. So yeah, you don't need to buy a tip bar, everyone. What you can do is just hook a band up to the end of your foot and raise your toes up to your face. And then you just saved yourself like a hundred bucks. But yeah. Full, dis- full think- disclaimer, we got one because I want to play with it. And it's, it's fun. I'm not going to lie. It's not the end of the world. Just get a band. It's fine. I hope your kettlebell up there if I want to crush my shins. And I don't even have kettlebells. We don't have heavy enough kettlebells. We have like one right now. We're, we're expanding. It's okay. Just give it time. <laughs> We'll get you there. We'll get you there. Um, yeah. And I think this is just like more of a disclaimer for people that are consuming social media of if it sounds too good to be true, um, that you can do this really simple bodyweight exercise and add six inches to your vertical in three weeks. It's probably not true. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing we're seeing too is like specifically in our niche, right? Like volleyball, volleyball has been incredibly notorious over the years for like, Hey, we're going to do a vertical jump program and we're going to jump like 250 times a day. Many reps. Like when I was a kid, air attack was like the biggest thing. Like, and you always had that one guy who jumped out of the gym and there was a group of them, say there was 10, but you always had that one guy who's like, yeah, I did air attack. And that's how I jumped so high. And like, what we don't realize is he probably had the like biomechanics to jump extremely high before he did air attack. So he could have done anything and he would have flown, but we're getting now still perpetuated in the industry is like, Hey, do this program where you're going to do all this jumping and you're going to get 10 inches on your, on your vertical. And all it's doing is perpetuating this, the same message that you just talked about with Instagram, right? It's, it's, it's just showing all this flashy crap and trying to convince you that this is what ultimately is making the difference when the basics are making the difference, but they are fucking boring. I have such a hard time making videos of my own workouts. Cause I'm like, I only do five same different thing. workouts a week and they're the exact same for yeah. months and months and months and months. So like, if you're paying attention, you might be like, Oh sweet. You put an extra 10 pounds on this week. But like, I didn't all of a Getting sudden crazy. Yeah, I didn't all of a sudden do some completely different exercise, right? It's boring yeah. stuff, but it works. These people who have these huge followings, they're not putting up the boring stuff, right? They're putting up the super flashy stuff. A lot of them have even come out and said like, hey, this is what is not what I do with most of my clients. I just do it to get likes. And then hopefully those people purchase my product. And, you know, another one that I'm seeing in the volleyball space, and not only is it like constant repetitive jumping, the other one that's becoming more and more apparent Um, And I think it's in line with what's happening with social media in the sense that we're actually getting away from lifting heavy in order to just make things look hard. And that's what's happening in the volleyball space as well. We're avoiding lifting heavy and instead adding adding low resistance to things that look exactly like volleyball. So I don't know how many people I've seen been doing this, like it's called an archer pull. It's a rear delt exercise that only is supposed to bring your humerus to your scapula, but now they're introducing thoracic rotation with this and everything. And I'm like, okay, so that, that doesn't belong in the gym. That's a drill that you can use, 
before you actually go hit the volleyball. But one, adding resistance to your arm swing is not going to improve your arm swing because you are most likely to adopt a different scenario when you actually have to execute the skill. Otherwise, we would just hit heavy medicine balls all the time. And then we would have like a super strong arm swing. So yoked up shoulders. Yeah. So I see all this shit like with this red band and shoulder hip separation and everything. And that's all great. But that has to be done in the context of with a ball to get that immediate feedback. That's not working out in the gym, right? That is technique work on the court. And too many people are trying to make the gym look like volleyball. Okay. Let's use the gym to create strength, to create power and resiliency. And let's express that on the court. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the allure with skating treadmills a long time ago. They used to have all these kids skating on treadmills up hills. And then all these kids got hurt because they're performing a high load skill in something and they're performing it in a different manner than they actually perform the skill. Right. Otherwise we would just pass fucking medicine balls and all of a sudden we'd get stronger passing platforms right so i'm i'm like in the the movement of like let's make the gym look less like volleyball but understand we're doing it for volleyball yeah so i want to and this is something i wanted to explore for a while and you are the perfect person to explore it with um what about in a scenario and this is specifically me asking this question because i work with this population a lot Yep. Say somebody plays once, maybe twice a week, adult athlete, you know, mid thirties, loves the sport, just, you know, is growing up and doesn't have as much time to play anymore. Mm -hmm. In your mind, along with doing the strength and exercise, the heavy stuff, all the stuff that goes into um, the gym setting, do you think that some, not practice in the gym, but some level of specificity in the gym could be beneficial to have that specific prep? Give me an example of what that looks like. Um, let me think. I was, it's, it's it, so like a push punch drill with okay. a band, for example, for somebody that doesn't get a lot of exposure to, um, to, to gameplay. To yeah, me, so that, you, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. I like it again. So I would think that that section of a workout would make up a small subsection of it, just the same way that it could for myself, right? Like Mm -hmm. I do things that look like I'm attacking, I'm creating shoulder stability at end range, right? That's going to be critical. How much that program looks like that will vary considerably, right? So for, I also train, you know, a lot of guys out in California in their forties, mid forties that are just trying to get B level stuff, right? Volleyball is something they love to do. And it's like, yeah, we have some kind of like, if you can even argue that they are sport specific patterns. Um, but a lot of what I'm designing those programs for, for those guys is so they don't get hurt, right? Yes. They can, they can continue to play week in and week out they might get two, three, four, 5% better. Like it might not be a huge change, but if you can keep them on the court without getting hurt for an entire season, I guarantee you they're, they're a client for life because oh, yeah. their performance might improve a little bit, but they were never sidelined, right? Because that's what's affecting that population as they go out, they get hurt, they can't play, right? So how do we keep those people? How do we keep those people in the game? And then the other thing is volleyball is important to them, but it's not the most important thing in the world. So we as coaches have to understand that if we sprinkle in some general health stuff in there, that's not necessarily specific to volleyball, that's probably going to go a long way for their confidence, for their general health, for their mood. And those are all going to have positive effects on the court, right? The, the sport becomes more enjoyable when, when those things all align. So long answer to say like, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's uh, in, in the right context, there's value in those, like in kind of breaking things down to be a little bit more specific, but you just got to figure out what is the appropriate amount of time to dedicate to those without overshadowing the overarching goals that you've identified as a, as a pair? Yeah. hundred percent. No, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And I think that every time you talk to a, a, a volleyball player, it's 40, 50. The first thing I say is, yeah, sure. Be nice to add some inches, whatever it is, but I just don't want to get hurt. And yeah. It's massively important. And I'm honestly getting to that point. And exactly. So even, you know, you think about that for an, uh, Let's call them, we'll call them mature athletes. I think that's how we should label it. I like now. that. This is like when the, in the show notes, mature athletes. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about mature athletes and what, what we're actually talking about is availability to play. Um, so are you, are you like when, you know, you think of injury, uh, you look at baseball and basketball, right? Oh, they're on the injured reserve. Like they're not available to play. 
availability of play is a significant predictor of your success in the sport as a youth as well, right? So the people most likely to turn professional are those who are most likely available to play all the time, right? So we need to actually develop our skills in a game situation. We need to get game experience. And as a youth athlete, if you're not available to play, that ultimately hurts your chances of, of moving to the next level. So one of the biggest factors in training youth as well is we can't do too much, right? Like we can't send, you can't be 20 year old Sam where you're like, I am going to absolutely annihilate myself in the gym every single day without twice a day. Yes. Without geez. Like when I was in university working there in the summer, man, yeah. do two days, like you're getting 10 sessions in a week. Right. But you got to realize that that's taking away sometimes from your on-court performance, or you might not be available to play because of that. And, and that's what we're trying to do with youth athletes is just give them the minimum effective dose so that they don't get hurt, the performance improves, and they're available for play, right? I think if yeah. you follow those three principles, you can't really go wrong. Yeah, no, totally. And it, it's funny to walk that line sometimes going back to the youth athlete side, because they'll be like mid-season. And all of a sudden it's like, Jordan, I want to add 20 pounds to my bench. It's like, well, cool. Love the ambition. Don't want to kind of quell that or uh, to push that down. But having those conversations of, around stress management and goal setting and sticking to goals is uh, a very different conversation a lot of times with the youth versus the mature athletes. Hey, and I would say I, I agree, but with a caveat, I also like my number one challenge as a coach online programming for people is I labeled myself as like the hardest worker in the world in beach volleyball, right? So people look at my instead of having a window guy come, right? That was my window. Um, <laughs> it just fell out of the out of the out of the frame. But when it comes to um, youth athletes, mature athletes, they come to me. You know, we we hop on a call, we try and identify, you know, what they want to do with strength and conditioning, what their availability of time is, how this can fit into their life. And my question is like, you know, how many hours a week do you have to dedicate to this? And and how many sessions throughout the week do you want to get that time done? Like if you got six hours, are we doing three, two hour sessions? Are we going to do, you know, a couple two hour sessions, couple one hour sessions? They all tell me they want to work out every day. And my first question is, or my first answer is like, no, we're not doing that. Like, if you want to do that, we can find somebody else. And they're like, well, I have the time to go to the gym. I'm like, well, you just told me you're playing three days a week and you have a full-time job. You've got two kids and you want to go to the gym every single day. Like, it's not going to happen. You just identified these goals as jumping higher, getting stronger. Like the frequency of your exercising there doesn't allow us the best possible chance to do that. Right. So I think you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, managing expectations right off the bat is huge. And the challenge I have is the expectation is the program is going to be like insane. Like they're going to be doing so much because yeah, like, you know, I'm doing like an RPE five deadlift at 400 pounds. Right. So people think that I just like, casual all you got to do is crush it. Yeah. Casual, no, like real flex. I did more than every volleyball player in the world. And I'll gladly promote that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, my body somehow not being you know, biomechanically built for deadlifting. I have a decent pull. It's just, it's just grit. That's, you just got to give the kid smelling salts and pre-workout and he'll yeah. get 20 extra. Pounds. Send him to elite FTS for a couple of months. They'll be fine. Yeah. But you know, that's, you hit the nail on the head is quality over quantity. What can we do to maximize your potential to achieve your goal without overshooting? Because you've got everything else going on in your life and that is taxing in itself. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And I find it's kind of funny when you get those scenarios, when somebody wants to train every day, half the time you ask them if they've done it before. And like half the time they're like, no, but I want to. And the other half time they'll be like, yeah, I tried it once. And I lasted a week. Like, yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. It sounds super sexy to go all out all the time, super hard RPE 10, every set. And then you ask the people that have actually tried it and, you know, big surprise, you crash and burn. Yeah. And I think the other thing is you're not a professional athlete, right? Yeah. So, you know, when I was playing full time and I didn't have a job to do something in the gym every day was, was not an issue. And I think that that's where people get this idea. Right. But me going into the gym every day, wasn't always working out. Right. There's lots of, I was separating conditioning sessions from strengthening sessions from, you know, mobility or dynamic, dynamic mobility sessions. So everything was planned to account for, total volume throughout the week, like my daily readiness, fatigue, changes in metric or body composition or whatever. Yeah. If you do that for a living, okay. Yeah. You can go to the gym every day because that's your job. But if you're 
general pop, it's unnecessary. And in, in most cases, it's counterproductive for most people. Mm -hmm. Like you talk about guys, like I want to, I want to develop strength and, you know, hit the gym hard a few times a week, three, four, two, if you only have time but take care of these other variables that you're completely neglecting, which have been just crushing your ability to get better sleep, nutrition, right? Like just your, your mental well-being. Like you take care of all of those things and then you lift weights aggressively a few times a week. Like it's going to take care of itself. It's not rocket science, but we love to get caught in the rat race of, you know, the guy next door to me is working out seven days a week. I'm going to fall behind. Kobe Bryant woke up at 4 a.m. and started his first session. Sam's working up at three. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with Kobe too. It's really going around on the internet right now. He's like, yeah, if you wake up at three and you do your first work. Oh my God. That's Default microphone. Can you still hear me? Oh, we're still good. Keep going. There we go. You Headphones died. But this whole Kobe thing of like, you can wake up at three o'clock, start your first session, 3.30. That means you got a whole extra practice on top of the three that everyone else did. So in 10 years, you have done, you know, 1,200 additional practices. That's why you're better. And it's like, sure, that's great. That worked for Kobe Bryant. But like, we're not Kobe Bryant. You're not, right? not Kobe. You're not that guy, pal. Not that guy. With Gary V, right? Gary V is on this hustle culture that works for certain people, but for the majority of us, like that's just going to result in burnout and you not enjoying what you do. Yeah, I, I love the Kobe thing because I don't think that people realize if you get up an hour early or two hours early or whatever it is, like you have to go to bed two hours before, and there's a practice in there usually. So it's like, what, what, what do you think is happening here? We don't magically gain time. Yeah. Like there's no way I'm waking up to work out at three 30 in the morning or I start at four 15 or whatever, but there's no way I'm doing that if I can't go to bed at eight 30. Yeah. So you know, I've gotten, I've gotten the call a few times to sub for my wife is co my wife's co-ed volleyball team. We're out until like nine 30. Then I'm like, Nope, not working out in the morning. Right. I'll yeah. push it lunch hour or something. You have to have a structure. And when people say, Oh yeah, Kobe woke up at three o'clock to do his first practice. Yeah. Well, Kobe also went to bed at seven, I'm sure to make sure yeah. that he rested to do that oh boy oh the internet it's such a wonderful place sometimes just follow our pages and ignore everything else the toxic cesspool of information oh it's just oozing but oozing. hey when you follow the right people though it's actually like this is why you know we look at the landscape of social media and you have people who it's it's an incredibly um mentally draining potentially negative thing in their life right well you're probably following the wrong people if that's the case. Like for like as a springboard to bigger and better things, social media represents like my number one go-to. I can go on there and follow evidence-based accounts that in 10 minutes on social media are going to give me so much information to dive into Absolutely. more aggressively outside of social media than any other collection of information out there, right? The individuals I've met since coming back, you know, guys like yourself and guys who are motivated in the industry to continue to get better. Like by no means do I think I'm like a world expert in beach volleyball. I'm so far from it when it comes to strength and conditioning, but I have such a thirst for knowledge to get better at it and, you know, reach out to guys like you and other players in the industry and learn from each other that it's such a positive place where it gets negative and toxic is just, if you're not using it for that particular, you know, that, as a resource for that. So, you know, a lot of the podcasts I listen to, a lot of the accounts that I follow are all strength and conditioning based. They're not fancy. They're all, you know, uh, research based. I follow a lot of journals and they just give me a ton of information to dive deeper in if that's something that interests me. Right. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I'd say the simple thing is if it's flashy, probably less, less accurate in general. Now there's exceptions that are very good accounts, accounts that are very evidence-based, but you know, as a general rule of thumb, if it's very flashy and has 3 million followers, just proceed with caution. Let's say yeah. real game athletics, right? Let's throw that one out there, man. Yeah. The amount of things have you, have you ever seen the volleyball one that he's like, these are volleyball exercises. Oh no, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. So we'll throw the best one I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I program this exercise for every single one of my clients I've never had. So he, uh, he had a red, uh, like a, a monster band, right? You know, long yeah. band. He had the, not a red one. He had an orange one. So that thing's like pretty hella thick, right? You're going to yeah. be like 
banded back squats with that thing. He, he had it hooked up to a chin-up bar and he jumped through the squat rack and it was attached to his arm oh. and he swung his arm with it. And this was like a volleyball workout. That this this particular post is what got me blocked by uh you know, another account that has like 600,000 followers because I questioned it's, it's the novelty of this stimulus and its effect on volleyball and how it would improve performance. But yeah, it's a, uh, he is the, the king of making things look super hard and complicated. Uh, in oh, I just to- remembered who you're talking about. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of like, okay, instead of doing like a lateral hop to a box, you're going to lateral hop to the box over the box, push up burpee, and then you're going to backflip on the box and there you you're gonna block just- a ball. You're going to, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? The flashier it is, I, the way I like to kind of consider exercise selection is in, a, in the broadest sense of the of the concept, the flashier it is, is probably the less likely we'll use it at high frequency. Right. So we might use it to um, we might use it for, uh, you know, uh, like buy in to have some fun, uh, you know, to mentally stimulate you. But like we know that that's what we're using it for. We're not using it because we think that this is like the perfect exercise to make you yeah. a volleyball player. We just know that we want compliance over time and consistency. So if we got to throw in some weird stuff in there and yep. warm up or at the end of a workout, by all means have at it. Yeah. And like, I, I used to be really kind of anal about that stuff and be like, no, it has to be perfect. And I'm just like, you know what? Training's fun. Sometimes that's okay for the 1% of the time. That's it's not going to hurt. And if it's fun, it's fun. Pretty good executed extremely well over the course of 10 years is going to significantly outperform perfect performed inconsistently, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, I think, and you did, uh, you know, you when we kind of bring it back to your bench press guy, I mean, good on him. I mean, I was in, I was on the hunt for <laughs> bench press for a long time. We actually had three rep max bench at Queens uh, as our fitness testing in 2005, 2010. Oh. And uh, what? My one, my, we did one rep max. It got changed to three rep max. So my one rep max as a rookie was 95 pounds. Like that's not 95. Spectacular. That is, that is the bar plus a 25. And I barely got it up. And then when I graduated, I benched three, uh, sorry, 235 for three. And I was like, okay, we're, we're working. I, I, I probably haven't benched since I left Western, but uh, it's, it doesn't do well for my, my shoulders anymore, but you know, you're talking about clients coming in with these expectations. And and one of the things that's important to realize and bring it back to this 10 years of consistent training is, you know, we, we overestimate what we can do in the short term and we underestimate what we can do in the long term, Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, I'm sure you've gotten these guys. It's like, Hey, I've got, I got four weeks until this, I've got six weeks until this. And it's just about, it's honestly about managing fatigue and making sure you don't get hurt because you really want to blast it out of the park in six weeks. And by week three, you're just going to be feeling like dog. Right. So let's, let's, uh, let's think further ahead into the future than, uh, you know, four weeks. Yeah, no, hundred percent. All right. Well, first of all, you're coming back. Sorry if you've had a crappy time, but you're going to come back anyways, because somebody needs to get their window fixed and uh, yeah, life goes on. Um, Sam, where can uh, people get a hold of you if they have questions or want to work with you online or whatever other information they want from you? Yeah. So they can always check out my website, www.sampedlo.com. They can send me a message on Instagram. It's just Pedlo Samuel across all social channels. I'm pretty active on Instagram. My, uh, my favorite thing to say is that I, I answer everyone. So if you ever think I can be a resource to you, please don't be afraid to reach out on social media. I see all your messages. I try and get back to everyone. Um, if I can be a resource for you, I consider that, you know, something special, right? I never thought that I'd be in the position I'm in, you know, playing 10 years professionally, considered an expert in the field of beach volleyball. So if, uh, if I can help anyone out in any way, or you think that I can be a, a resource to you, I, I just encourage everyone to, to reach out and uh, I'll get back to them as soon as I can. And unlike most social media people, he's not bullshitting. Like I'm an example of this. I just randomly reached out to this guy one day and we have turned this into some kind of surprisingly awesome relationship. So, you know, real guy. Someone's got to read through all our DMs about exercise prescription and selection and realize that you can't do that in DM. Like you Mm got to talk to someone. Mm -mm. We're going to have like three different podcasts and one is just going to be Jefferson curl variations. And And why we like them. One will probably be us debriefing that gigantic textbook that uh, I have yet to, I'm going to print it off and, and put it in the binder. It's too much. It's so much. 
so much. There's it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in there that I, I didn't even like a lot of it because it's research backed. I'm super interested to get into it, but um, the jumpers paradox is already something that uh, in, it kind of sparked my eye to look deeper into that. The concept of for every, I don't know the exact percentages, but they, they did them in the study, but for every, let's call it inch, you jump higher, you have this much increased likelihood of having knee pain. Right. So this this concept like really stirred in my brain at night because I'm like, people are paying me to get them to jump higher. But as a result, I'm potentially exposing them to pain. So like, how do I program to like account for that, but also communicate it, right? Like we look at these guys who are huge leapers and we're like, oh, they must not be in pain. But in fact, they're the most likely to be in pain. So that book I'm uh, super excited to dive into because I think it's got like the, the most concentrated collection of research when it comes to volleyball uh, in, in one particular location. Yeah. And I think we were talking about the podcast with Lehman and uh, Meekins. And I think Lehman said it really nicely at the end. He's like, honestly, I don't really know how we reduce injuries. It turns out if you do things more, you're more likely to get hurt doing that thing. And that's about as much as we can say. And I'm like, oh, that's very simply eloquent. Yeah. The more you do, the more likely you are to be in pain. And I don't think people realize that pain is like a natural function of life, right? We just need to manage expectations around it. And uh, it's pretty simple. Hey, look, there's three new podcasts we just came up with. We're going to have a whole series. I'll see you next week. Yeah, seriously. All right, man, I'll let you go. This has been uh, fantastic. Thank you, uh, all four listeners, including uh, my mom and Sam's parents for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time, guys.